on the job with Francis Leach and Sally Rugg. It's On The Job, the podcast, all about making your working life better. Francis Leach here for our summer series, our history nerd out with the historical oracle, Dr. Liam Byrne. So over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be having a look at union and worker history, some great stories that have never been told or have been forgotten, and we're going to share them with you. But today, we're going to ask the big question as we head into 2022 and another election, is Scott Morrison historically the worst Prime Minister Australia has ever had. Now, hold that thought. Let's leave it to Dr. Liam to help us out with this one. Dr. Liam, welcome back to On The Job. G'day, Francis. Great to be here. Shame we don't have Sally with us today, but it's uh, lovely to be back with you. It's great to have you. And we love having you on because we get to talk about history, and history is always fun. And uh, it's a nice diversion from the world in which we're currently living. But maybe not this time because today we're talking about prime ministers and crisis, and maybe we're even going to have our own uh, uh, league ladder on who have been the best prime ministers and maybe the very worst when it comes to dealing with a crisis. So let's start right at the beginning. Scott Morrison and the COVID crisis. Has that made him or does that rate him now as maybe our worst ever prime minister in a crisis? Well, he's getting pretty close if he's not already there, I think. I mean, when you think about the things that you really want from a prime minister, or at least that I want from a prime minister, and what I look at as a political biographer, but also as a person, I want things like a vision, you know, somebody who looks forward into the future and they want to move us towards something. But doing that, understand the pressures of the time and the particulars of the time. So these are things that Scott Morrison has just not exhibited at all at any point in his prime ministership, even before COVID-19. Like, has he ever actually articulated a compelling and clear vision of Australia and what our future should be? Well, I'd argue no. I haven't actually seen that once from this guy. But then once the pandemic hit, I think a lot of people said, all right, well, that's Here's a chance. Yeah. Benefit of the doubt. Let's see what he can do. And since then, has he demonstrated he even understands the particulars of this time compared to the premiers, compared to the expert advice? Again, No. And so I think the bar of what makes a great prime minister in some ways has been lowered a little bit because previously I used to think, you know, grand transformations and grand visions, where now when I look at great you know, prime ministers compared to Morrison, I just think about the people who demonstrate that they genuinely care about the public, where Morrison has done very little to demonstrate he does. Okay, so let's put him in the frame. Like, he's on the starting blocks, but I'm going to go all the way back and throw a couple at you to see if I can maybe uh, put somebody at the bottom of the ladder below Morrison. Bring it on. Let's go with the rat, Billy Hughes. Now, tell people about Billy Hughes, one-time Labor Prime Minister who, uh, well, he ratted and in the middle of World War One, and that makes him in our eyes <laughs> right, <laughs> right down there in the bottom of the pile, surely. That's right. Well, Billy Hughes was uh, an extraordinary figure. He was in the New South Wales Parliament before Federation. He was in the Parliament, uh, the Federal Parliament from our point of Federation, 1901 till he passed away. So over 50 years, he was part of our political history. But he's most famous for his prime ministership, which began in 1915. He was became prime minister during the First World War. So obviously, the stakes are pretty high. Now, what happened during the First World War was that Big business was actually doing quite well out of the situation, but working people were suffering. Workers were more likely to go to the front lines, more likely to sign up to fight, but also on the home front, they were more likely to experience wage stagnation, more likely to experience the, you know, the bad effects of the rising cost of living. So they wanted a referendum and the labor movement wanted a referendum to give the government the ability to control prices to make sure that people's lives were decent while they were sacrificing for the war. Hughes became prime minister 
immediately reneged on the promise that the Labor Party had that they would do that. So he went to the election with a promise to do that. So Labor did it before him, and he initially said that he was going to do it. But then within a couple of months, he said he wasn't going to do it. But then things got a lot worse because then he went on a tour to Britain. Uh, he was very well received in Britain. He went spoke to all the finest halls and met all the notables. They had a meeting with the king at the time and so on. And he came back and he announced that pretty soon there was going to be a different referendum. But this one was going to be to conscript Australians to go fight in Europe um, as part of the imperial war effort. Now, we need to put this in a bit of context. So he sounds like he was seduced by proximity to power and prestige in a way that a Labor leader never should. And this is at a time when Australia's sectarian divide was still pretty raw between, uh, and what was going on in Ireland at the time was a a revolutionary war of independence and a lot of Irish Australians weren't maybe inclined to be signing up to be defending the British Empire. So he was setting off, you know, a fire alarm in a building where (laughs) there were a lot of people ready to head to the exits. And very purposely so. I mean- Yeah, you think it was deliberate? Well, it's the sectarianism at the time. Like, he mobilised sectarianism. He also mobilised racism. Uh, in terms of, you know, he invoked the white Australia policy. He was a big supporter of that racist policy. Actually, one of his most sort of like famous sort of stances during his prime ministership was to defend the racist white Australia policy. Um, and also, he stoked, as you mentioned, the, the point about Ireland. Like, he was very, very explicit that if you oppose Hughes, he would call you um, a Sinn Féinor, uh, as the term at the time was, as a, a political party in Ireland and still is. Where that is a badge of pride, but whatever. <laughs> but, at the, yeah, at the time, the connotations of it were quite different. But if you didn't um, support conscription to Hughes, you were disloyal, you were treacherous, you were Sinn Féinor. He mobilised what was called the War Precautions Act, which was you know, effectively just like a, a massively punitive act of censorship. You know, trade unions who opposed him had their officers raided by military police. Uh, John Curtin, who later became a, a wartime prime minister in the Second World War, went to prison for three days because he opposed Hughes' attempt to basically force people into military training. He refused to call up. Like, this was a difficult, difficult time. And Hughes did this to try and get his way. He knew exactly what he was doing when he mobilised sectarianism in the campaign, but he wanted to win, so he did it. So what happened to his Labor prime ministership at this particular time? So this first referendum goes to the people. It gets rejected. That's right, yeah. It gets rejected by the Australian public in 1915. 16. 16. What happens to Billy Hughes, uh, Labor prime minister? So what happens, October, uh, October 1916, the vote is held and Hughes is defeated. Just before then, so... If you know much about the, the Labor Party, be aware that the, at that time in particular that it's organised into different branches. So the New South Wales branch of the Labor Party expelled him. Um, and so The Prime Minister. Him, expelled the Prime Minister. Imagine that today. If the- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty drastic step. But again, it shows just how, you know, this was a question, a serious question about civil liberties, but also where Australia sort of fits in the world and the British Empire. Like, was Australia its own country? Or was Australia just a little adjunct, you know, as they conceived it on the other side of the world, there to be sort of, just doing the whims of what those in London wanted. And fundamentally, that's what Hughes said Australia was uh, when it came to the war effort. He wanted to subordinate the uh, civil liberties of Australian people to the war priorities of London. And that was you know, what was at stake. So he was expelled by the state branch. Then he walked out of caucus and it was this very sort of, like, dramatic moment that took place in Spring Street here in Victoria, which is where the parliament was at the time. But then in December of that year, there's a very, very famous conference where James Scullin, who also later became a Labor Prime Minister, moved the motion to formally expel Hughes and everybody uh, associated with him from the Labor movement effectively for all time. And after that point, Hughes never came back because he was never allowed back. And he was, as you said before, from that point on, an official rat. And what did he become a conservative or what sort of political life did he have after that? A really weird one. So he Mark uh, Latham-esque. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, 
Definitely on that sort of scale of weirdness, absolutely. <laughs> so he initially he kind of had this um, sort of amalgam party, which was kind of a little bit, you know, a few of his Labor supporters, and then he rolled in sort of conservative sort of parties. So he was with them until, uh, well, throughout the rest of his political life, but he was Prime Minister of Australia of a conservative political party until 1922. And then basically he was so unpopular that the country party, which is today the National Party, they refused to work with him as long as he was Prime Minister. So he had to be, um, he had to stand down. But he remained in politics for a better part of the next three decades. And you're telling me that uh, he created an entire government agency because of a single egg? A single egg. What is so, this about? This was a, a really one of those kind of like strange incidents. That during the second conscription campaign, he was up in um, Queensland, the Warwick Railway Station, and he was talking to people about why he was going to you know, do everything he could to introduce conscription. And a fellow in the crowd threw an egg at him. So somebody who was opposed to conscription. Uh, and this was actually quite a common act at the time. Uh, you know, one of the aspects Original of egg boy. Exactly, yeah. So, oh gosh, that's a blast from the past. I totally forgot about that. So I shouldn't say a regular act at the time. It's a regular act in Australian politics, it just turns out. But he threw um, an egg at Hughes and Hughes was absolutely outraged. Apparently, it was so well aimed, it actually knocked off his hat. Awesome. Uh, which I'm sure was the intention rather than splattering over his face. But Hughes attempted to leap into the crowd. He wanted a piece of him. He wanted a piece of him, yeah. <laughs> and Hughes was quite a small person, but a very belligerent a one. So it's a yeah, a little rat, exactly. So he then demanded that the local police arrest the person who threw the um, threw the egg at him. And the response was, this is in Queensland. Queensland was an anti-conscription state, was you don't have jurisdiction here. <laughs> so this precipitated the creation of a Commonwealth police force, which later you know, went through a few changes and is the modern-day Australian federal police. So the AFP started as a consequence of an egging. That's right. And I looked this up the other day. It's actually an article on their website from the centenary um, of this, which sort of mentioned it. So it's kind of nice to see them sort of Drawing upon this history, I suppose. Okay, so Billy Hughes definitely in our list of the worst. What about poor old Stanley Melbourne Bruce? I mean, not many people know about Bruce's prime ministership. It sort of sits on the cusp of the of the, of the Great Depression and whatnot between the Hughes era and then we get, of course, curtain falling after Menzies. What, what was his story? Well, again, Stanley Bruce is a very interesting person, partially because of how forgotten he is. Like, I, I, as far as I'm aware, he's not really regularly on um, school curriculums. He, I, I haven't really seen a Netflix special on him. You know, he's not somebody who really evokes a sort of like public imagination. And you know, if, if you read about him, you can kind of see why. Like, he was very snobbish. Uh, he was a very conservative, much a super conservative. Yeah. So he came after um, immediately after Hughes, and he sort of had this business career first. He actually did serve during the First World War, but he served with the British. Imperial forces rather than the Australian, but he was part of what we now know as the Gallipoli campaign. So he did, you know, at least have that kind of real life experience. But apart from that, his entire life was spent at, you know, private schools, boardrooms, you know, the, the elite of society. And he very much embodied that when he became prime minister after Hughes, like he used to be ferried around in a Rolls Royce. Uh, he wasn't exactly, you know, some and man going, of the people. Not no, yeah. I mean, I'm trying to find a polite way to say <laughs> it, but you know, like it, it wasn't like he was going to, you know, the MCG and sitting with the riffraff or anything like that. And if you have a look, you know, just go- I encourage people just Google Stanley Bruce and just look at the sort of like photos of the guy and the way he was. You know, he kind of sneers out of the camera and stuff. Like he was not somebody who you would necessarily want to. You know, I don't think all politics should be decided by who you'd want to have a beer with at the local pub, but. You definitely would not with this guy. But the real problem with him was, like a lot of others, was he kind of just embodied the orthodoxies at a time, and in particular the economic orthodoxies. And you mentioned that the Great Depression, which usually people would say began in 1929. Um, But there's a lot of history to kind of point out that actually there potentially was even a couple of years earlier. And the problem with uh, Bruce was that he, uh, like many conservatives, when they're in government, they love to spend uh, and they don't really care about a lot of the um, sort of, you know, 
the problems and ramifications of that as long as they get political advantage from it. And so he had absolutely no problem with borrowing um, from the banks in London, which was the arrangement for Australia at the time, to cover over a number of sort of economic mismanagement. But the thing was that, of course, at some point, you do need to take some action around that. And so he, like many other conservatives, decided that it would be workers who paid. So some of the strongest policies that he had were actually the policies that he introduced to try and prevent trade unions organising to punish workers if they went on strike and so on. So at the same time, as showing very little regard for you know what some aspects of business were spending, what his you know, political allies were spending, and so on. Very very keen to introduce punitive sort of anti-union laws. One of the most famous ones being um, its its formal name is very very boring, but it became known as the Dog Collar Act. So this is a time when if you were working on the docks, your work was what we call now casual. So like super precarious, extremely tough, and backbreaking, dangerous, super dangerous. So of course, people were unionized and they took action. Uh, he introduced this act, which meant that if you wanted to work on the dock, you had to have a license, which the government would give you. And they wouldn't give it to you if you did certain things like join a union or go on strike. So it was this super punitive, again, a massive attack on civil liberties that was targeted towards working people. And this is exactly what he thought at the end of the day, was that working people should pay the cost of an economy that was faltering. Was there a, a flashpoint moment in 1929 that sort of crystallised all this? Yeah, so 1929, what's um, happening at this point is he attempted to effectively get rid of the Commonwealth arbitration system. So this was, it was a lot of political sort of like distortions, so on and sort of negotiations that were going on. But effectively, 1929, the economy was beginning to get very seriously to decline. The unemployment was going up. You know, common story, unemployment goes up, wages are going down while the cost of living is increasing. So what does he decide to do? He decides to massively transform the entire um, industrial relations system to prevent workers from having the same access to it that they had previously and to get ahead. Now, he's not the last uh, Australian Prime Minister to attempt in sort of an act of hubris to do so, who's also been punished by the electorate. But what this resulted in was just an absolute repudiation of Bruce and his government in 1929. But then this is a real tragedy, was that a lot of the acts that he took were actually weakened the economy over the long run and actually overexposed us to you know a, a major deterioration in the international economy. But then he himself, he just he lost the election and then he rode off into the sunset. And it was others who actually ended up carrying the can for that. On he goes to the brown list, Stanley Melbourne Bruce on our shit list of <laughs> Prime Ministers. <laughs> Now, Robert Menzies, the icon of conservative Australia, the quiet Australian's hero, they, they, they love him in the conservative movement. They love Menzies still. He's well, like their John Reagan. personal hero. He, he's, he's like their Reagan, isn't he? He's sort of like, yeah. they, they love him a lot. Um, not so much us. But um, anyway, uh, back to the point at hand, you've got Menzies on, your, on, the, on the brown list. Um, where do we start? Do we start with, oh, you start. You're the historian. <laughs> you start. I've got a few things, a few bugbears, but you go first. Well, I think there's a ton of things <laughs> to say about Menzies. I think one of the things that's quite interesting, as you mentioned, is that they valorise um, Menzies in the, the modern Liberal Party and so on as their founder and inspirator and, and so on. But they very rarely actually invoke his policies and what he actually did or describe that in any depth or detail. It's kind of like a, a caricature in ways, which I, I think is quite an interesting sort of reflection. I mean, does I, Scott Because Morrison- also he's also, he was witty. There's no doubt that Menzies was witty and if you read some of his stuff, he was quick-witted. And oh, yeah. He, he knew how to handle the crowd and he was he was robust enough to front up to hecklers and all that sort of stuff. So people give him credit for that stuff, okay? We, can give, yeah. we don't give him credit because he was a big Carlton fan. That's That puts him <laughs> on my brown list. But these yeah. are more important issues that you're going to raise. Yeah, look, I think that with um, Menzies, the sort of thing that I would take from that is that he yeah, he he was a person of substance in his own way. Like yeah. he had his beliefs. He um, and he was clearly you know, highly intelligent. And you, you read some of the things he said in Parliament; they were quite funny at, yeah. at times. You know, you definitely give him all that sort of stuff. But I think the for me the most important thing was that Menzies was Prime Minister twice. So from 1939 to 1941, 
uh, and then later from 1949 to 1966, that later period which is better known for. But the earlier period, of course, 1939 to 1941, this is during the Second World War. This is a pivotal moment in Australia's history and world history. And what did he do in that period? Uh, I think is a really important question. So first thing is that uh, he became Prime Minister after Joe Lyons died in office. For a period of time, Earl Page and the Country Party was Prime Minister in a caretaker sort of basis, while the precursor party to the Liberals sort of sorted themselves out, and Menzies was elected. The first thing that Earl Page did was say, I refuse to serve under Robert Menzies because he despised him. And many, many other people did because while Menzies was you know, intelligent and so on, he was pompous, he was arrogant, he uh, found it very, very difficult to work with other people, he, you know, he was condescending, uh, and he just generally was not the kind of person who was able to build sort of alliances and coalitions and so on. Now, that's like a pretty big problem when the country is at war. And you know, some of the earliest acts that he had um, internationally was sending Australian troops to initially the Middle Eastern theatre, who then subsequently went to Northern Africa, to um, Greece. This is a time when Australia was increasingly under threat. Can I ask you about that? Was there a sense at the time that that was necessary to do in order to defend the British Empire? Because Japan hadn't entered the war at that point, though, of course, Japan was at war in in China and Manchuria. Was there an active debate around the validity of that, or did that seem like the right thing for Menzies to do because Britain was fighting for its life? Well, many people did, of course, believe that it was the right thing to do, and particularly many conservatives. But the reason, a large part of the reason, for that was that they were unable to think about Australia's interests and our identity outside the bounds of the British Empire. So if Menzies, who described himself as British to the bootstraps, fundamentally believed that the war priorities would be determined in London, and so it was a good idea to send troops to the Northern African theatre and to Greece. So hence we got the Rats of Tobruk. Rats of Tobruk. I mean, and this is, you know, in terms of the, the severity of what Britain was undergoing, and of course Britain was standing out largely alone in Europe against the Nazi empire. That was a valiant and a positive thing. And of course, support should be shown to that. But a question was more, does Menzies actually have a strategy for what Australia will do if the very, very, and it was seen as very, very likely that the Japanese empire would expand uh, southwards and that Australia's interests and Australia itself will come under threat? Is there a plan? And Menzies' fundamental plan was to trust in the British empire's capacity to defend what was then referred to as the Far East. So he said that they weren't defending it enough and they should send more troops and so on. But unlike the, you know, Curtin and others in the Labor Party, he didn't have a plan for independent action. And also was a, you know, still a signed-on member of the imperialist idea that the British Navy was the most powerful force in the world and that the base at Singapore was going to protect any Southwood for us from the Japanese. And uh, how did that turn out? Not so great. And, of course, he spent a lot of the war in London, didn't he? He was, he des- was desperate to be part of Churchill's cabinet. That's right. There is, you know, there's a lot of sort of speculation about how far his ambitions went and what his ultimate goal was and whether he was seeking you know, office there on a more permanent basis and so on. But I, the way it shaked out was that he went to Britain for a period of time, which was, again, one of those sort of things that was kind of seen as necessary because of the arrangement. But then he tried to go a second time, largely because he couldn't work with the people in his own government and he, he would much rather have been over there. And so he actually asked for permission from Parliament and from the Labor Party to go. And they said, you're the Prime Minister, like you should be here. And this was sort of saying like, what, I should be here in Australia? You know, it's this like horrendous sort of thing. But I mean, this again, on the home front and in Australia, like during the, the phony war periods, Menzies basically said, oh, it's business as usual and so on. So like, it's not that he was totally overrun by circumstance. It's that he 
purposely ignored a lot of the developments and what was happening, and he didn't prepare Australia for what was going to be necessary. And he might have made it worse because he was known by unionists and working people as Pig Iron Bob. Tell people why that was. Yeah, I mean, and this is a huge thing. So during the 1930s, there was obviously the rise of militarism. So the Second World War in the Pacific, uh, I would say, didn't actually begin in 1941, or like a lot of people think it did. It actually began in 1937 when the Japanese Empire invaded China. And Australian trade unionists, um, many Australian trade unionists identified this as an act of imperialist aggression and they stood in solidarity with um, the Chinese people against this. And so one of the things that was happening was that the pig iron was being used, um, sorry, it was being produced in Australia and being sent to Japan and being used in military production that was then going to be used in China as part of the invasion that was going on. And in Port Kembla in particular, the Waterside Workers Federation, which is a precursor of today's MUA, they refused to load a ship, which is called the Dauphram. And this is a time when those licenses that I mentioned earlier were being used. And Robert Menzies at this time was the Attorney General. And so he attempted to break the strike of the Waterside Workers Federation who refused to load pig iron to be sent for military production in Japan that would then be used against the Chinese people. Uh, It was a massive strike. It lasted for 10 weeks and Menzies attempted to break it. And so he went to Port Kembla. He tried to convince people to uh, not undertake this protest. He was not received very well. And the strike is, you know, it's, it's actually a beautiful moment in union history in Australia. You know, the Chinese community within New South Wales sent uh, supplies to sustain the strikers. They, they weren't getting paid for 10 weeks out of an act of solidarity. And Pig Iron Bob became the name that Menzies picked up as a result of this uh, and sort of kept it at the time. And he did make statements then about, you know, the importance of the uh, alliance with Japan and how Japan was like a, a friendly ally and, and so on and so on at the exact same time as it was invading China. Menzies, on the brown list, there he goes, he's there. What about Malcolm Fraser, who you've listed here as well? Now, a lot of people, younger people in particular, uh, had an experience of Malcolm Fraser later in his life, before he passed away, as this uh, octogenarian humanitarian with a vision for a kinder, gentler world. Are they wrong? Yeah, I think that they are substantial. I mean, there there are some areas where Fraser, I think, does stand out in a positive way. Um, One of them being, of course, the decision to have a more positive policy towards refugees, particularly those coming uh, from Vietnam after the war. And, you know, Peter Dunnan attacked Fraser's legacy on refugees not uh, not too long ago. And if Peter Dutton's attacking you about uh, something, you're usually doing something right, I think. (laughs) But that does sort of take away from a lot of the reality of what Fraser did and what his government was actually about. And the way his government came about as well is, you know, Fraser was somebody who purposely denied the Whitlam government its supply. So in other words, when he was an opposition leader, he so fundamentally believed that the Liberal Party had a right to rule that he starved the democratically elected government of the funding that it needed for its budget against all convention. Uh, in a means that would actually lead to Whitlam's dismissal. One of the key parts of that dismissal was the decision by the Liberals that they just thought that they had the right to be in government. The Labor Party effectively didn't. This came after the 23 years of government they'd been in, and they were willing to completely break convention to do it. I mean, that is a huge constitutional crisis, but it's something that distorts you know, our politics and our system and exposes really, really fundamental questions of power. And then when Fraser is in government, when he believes that he has the right to rule, what are the main things that he does? So this is a time, of course, when um, in the sort of like mid-70s, so for people who aren't aware, Fraser came in in 1975 after the um, Whitlam dismissal in November. Won the election in December. Won the election in December, unfortunately, uh, which, uh, you know, kind of makes some of those things quite difficult where you sort of accuse these things. But the reality is that he, he was endorsed electorally after that election and the Whitlam government, of course, had you know, many, many reasons why it lost a lot of the affection that people originally had had for it. But this is a time of fundamental uncertainty and doubt internationally that a lot of the sort of like economic arrangements and so on that have been in place since the post-war period were falling apart. 
And so it's a real uh, period of questioning. Like, what type of country is Australia going to be? And Fraser's answer to that was that he wanted to have a country where, at the end of the day, budget balancing was put ahead of things that previously had been seen as absolutely sacrosanct in Australia, in particular, full employment. So he broke that promise and he uh, moved away from that and said, began to target inflation as opposed to saying the, you know, the main thing that the government needs to do is prevent inflation from spiralling. And he said that one of the major reasons for inflation to spiral is that workers are getting increases in wages. So he attacked unions consistently over his period in government. I should point out as well that while he attacked unions consistently, inflation didn't go down. So this correlation which apparently existed was not so automatic. And he, not only did he introduce laws to penalise unions in the workplace and so on, he also destroyed and attempted to destroy fundamental parts of what we call now the social compact. One of the most important ones being, in 1975, Whitlam introduced, it was called Medibank, but it was the equivalent of Medicare, universal healthcare, against the Liberals. They did not want this. Like, uh, they sorry, still don't. Let's face it. They still don't. You know, This is deeply embedded in them because they much prefer the kind of Americanized private health system sort of uh, scale. So- Fraser, as soon as he came to government, began to undermine it. And the only reason that it wasn't destroyed totally was that the, actually the ACTU led a, a strike in 19, July of 1976, which somewhere between 1.5 to 2 million workers uh, were involved in. Bob Hawke, who's the president at the time, led it to defend the system. Now, Fraser you know, wasn't deterred. He you know, began to undermine it, undermine it, undermine it, gradually over a period of time. But what it shows is the priorities of conservatives. That when it came to the crunch, when it came to a moment of questioning, a moment where we had to decide, you know, a bit like Bruce, what is our country going to look like? Well, what was the instant reflex? To attack workers, to attack the things that holds our society together and to prioritise big business, um, you know, budget discipline and all the sort of things which like, sure, I mean, that looks really, really good when you're, you know, in the pages of the Australian newspaper, but when it comes to people's actual lives, are they getting better or worse? And actually, Fraser made a lot of people's lives worse. Put him on the brown list. He's on. Fraser, over there you go. John Howard, you've listed him as well. Now, Howard was Prime Minister for an extended period of time, 11 years, I think it was. 11 years, yeah. Might be the only Prime Minister that some of our listeners uh, remember who've been, who been who is actually on this list. Was he is really he the last one to have served a full term? That's a good question. I think he is. Which is quite extraordinary when you think about it. It's, uh, I mean, definitely growing up through you know, my life, I can't remember how old I was when he went off. So I think I was either nine or 10. It's a long time ago. Don't want to reveal my age. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> There was a long, long period, particularly when I was a teenager and so on, where that was the only political possibility. It was just Howard sort of looming above everything. And it just sort of seems at one point like almost like that was just the inevitability that, you know, he was just going to be elected time and time and time again. And now, the Conservatives will say about Howard that he delivered an age of prosperity. Uh, uh, home ownership went through the roof. People were earning good wages. You were having one child for you, for the wife, one child for the husband, one child for the country. It was all, it was all coming up roses for a long period of time. How could he be about Prime Minister Liam? Well, I think that there's something you know fundamental in the Howard years which corroded Australian social life is that Howard introduced uh, in a way which hadn't been, you know, it existed before, but in a very, very active way, the political mobilisation of division. And we could see that around his constant appeals to dog whistle politics around refugees, um, around uh, with Indigenous uh, Australians being used uh, in this incredibly politicised way. Um, think about things like the Northern Territory intervention, which was a horrendous attempt to you know, intervene uh, in Indigenous people's lives and destroy any last vestiges of self-determination for attempted political gain. You know, so somebody who introduced you know, this very, very American playbook of Republican politics into Australia. But beyond that as well, and what he actually attempted to achieve in his time was the fundamental erosion of the social compact that had existed in Australia, really since the terms of federation. When you think about things like the arbitration system, and which had historically been you know, predicated on the idea that you would have workers represented, you know, 
by their unions pretty equally uh, with the employers who would have their representation for their employer groups. Whereas Howard was obsessed, absolutely obsessed with undermining all forms of collective representation for working people. I'm sure you remember all the way back, but he said in, you know, before he was elected in 96, oh, we don't have any like real fundamental industrial relations uh, changes planned. Then he gets elected. And what's the first thing he does in his first year of government is introduce a major industrial relations bill, which basically is attempting to push as many people as possible onto individual agreements because he wants workers as individuals to bargain with their employers. Because what does that do? It introduces a power imbalance, which makes it harder to get ahead. And this is something that individualization of our society that runs all through those 11 years in government. When you think about the way to try to push people towards private health, towards private schools, towards, you know, it's all about trying to break the bonds that hold us together and to sort of have us just operating as free-floating individuals uh, working on the market system. So there it's like Margaret corrosive. Thatcher in a beige suit with bushy eyebrows. Yeah, that's right. And that running suit that he always had uh, and you know, all that sort of stuff, you know, the kind of like the fake sort I think of he's the worst prime minister we've ever had because his bowling action was awful too. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah, that was pretty... <laughs> That, that How embarrassment. Mean, but this is the sort of thing is that, you know, because I, I see why he, he appreciates Menzies so much. You know, you think about Menzies was somebody uh, as prime minister who during the post-war era, he really relied on the fact that the Curtin and Chifley government did all the heavy lifting of major economic reform and put the things in place that would then most people would look back and say were positive of that time, like full employment and growing prosperity. John Howard is somebody who basically avoided all the sort of hard policy work when he was in government. He was Fraser's treasurer. Uh, the Hawke and Keating years, which make these fundamental transformations in the way the Australian economy runs. And then you have the mining boom, and he rides it through those 11 years, proclaiming the great wisdom of the Liberal Party in the way it's uh, performing economically, when actually very little of that was to do with what they themselves had put in place. And what they did do was massively redistribute the wealth that was being created at that time to the hands particularly of the wealthier people in Australia, but in ways that were div- divided, uh, sorry, intended to try and divide us and keep us individualised. On the brown list, Howard, over you go. Before we finish up, Billy McMahon and Tony Abbott aren't necessarily on your list, which I find amazing because I think they're both chaotic prime ministers, but is it because that they're so clownish? that? <laughs> yeah, it's, <laughs> it's really hard to kind of, you know, to put them on the list. Surely Abbott's got to be. <laughs> but he never had to deal with a massive crisis that's, like this, That's he? the reason why, I mean, yeah. because he – with Billy, so goodness. Billy, Billy McMahon, well, I mean, he really, really does make you sort of worried about oh. what would be uh, happening. Oh. But with somebody like Billy McMahon, who was just a, you know, so he, he was the one who uh, Whitlam defeated in 1972. He was only prime minister for a year and a bit. But he was somebody who, again, he was just a terrible, terrible person to try and work with politically. He didn't really believe in anything. He, you know, it was just, you know, it was quite often said of him that he was obsessed with what the day's uh, newspaper headlines were. Might have gone okay today then. That's the sort of politics we have. Yeah, well, it's uh, a Morrison prototype in more ways than one. Whereas Tony Abbott, again, you know, somebody who, like his world vision and his belief and his understanding is like completely uh, opposed to my own. Like there's, I I can think of almost no commonality with him, but there wasn't a moment of crisis that he's put forward where he's just abjectly failed because, you know, apart from anything else, because of the strange nature of his prime ministership, he wasn't there for long enough. Indeed. His one moment was uh, wanting to shirt front Vladimir Putin. That's uh, right. Well, And also in 2014, you know, they introduced that horrendous budget, which really did reveal a lot about what the Conservatives are, that they just wanted to make working people pay. They wanted to make it tougher to get access to things like Medicare and so on. And at least one thing that you can say ab- uh, about Abbott, and it's not much, but is he revealed really bluntly who the Liberals are, whereas a lot of other Liberals try and hide that. That, you know, if you see, look at who controls the modern Liberal Party, a significant chunk of these people – um, um, conservative, uh, in not in the sort of way that Menzies was, but in a uh, you know, very, very deeply problematic way, and believe at the end of the day fundamentally that working people don't deserve the things that we have 
historically gained as a result of the fact that our work actually makes this country turn around. And they want big business to run the show at all times with all things. One thing I'll say about Abbott was he was at least pretty open about that. Dr. Liam, how do you think historians will then assess the Morrison era, particularly in this moment of crisis, our biggest national crisis in generations? Where do you think he's going to sit? I mean, this story's got to play itself out still, but how's he tracking? Well, I think one thing that we can say is that when you look at it now, with the 18 months or so that we've been involved in a pandemic, and as you say, we don't know how everything is going to sort of fold out, is that this has been one of the most abject failures of public policy, definitely in my life. I think there's things where which are going to take decades to really work out. I mean, one thing I think it's really interesting is up until now, most people haven't looked at their state governments and state premiers as being the primary political figures who are giving certainty and giving uh, leadership because of the nature of the federal state um, sort of commonwealth relationships. Whereas right now, I think they are. There was nothing innate or inevitable in that. I mean, I probably always would because I love Daniel, uh, Daniel Andrews with a bizarre fervor. You know, that's just a, a nature of my political life. But, you know, for a lot of people... That level of leadership was not something that they expected. Whereas now, there's been such a failure of leadership by the Commonwealth that I think that this is something which we, we don't know what this is going to mean for our future relations. While we don't know absolutely everything, uh, how this is going to pan out, I do think people are going to look back and historians are going to look back and just wonder how somebody who completely failed so often to provide any of the basic tenets of leadership was able to be sustained in this sort of moment. Like Some of the things that they are doing are not just inept, but bizarre. It is just strange. And I think that demonstrates something really fundamental about Morrison, which is he is the product of the utter cynicism that has been abounding within our political system because people who fundamentally do not believe in government run one of the major parties of government in Australia, which is the Liberal Party. Dr. Liam, it's always great fun talking history with you. We'll do it again soon. Fantastic. Can't wait, Francis. This is On The Job with Francis Leach and Sally Rudd. Thanks again to Dr. Liam Byrne for another fantastic History Nerd Out. Uh, it's your chance now to give us a rating on your favourite platform, give us the stars and a review. It helps that algorithm and other people find the information and inspiration. So please do that for us. Uh, we'd be very grateful. If you come this far into the podcast, you must like it. So, uh, yeah, give us the review, the rating, and spread the word. Thank you for listening and catch you next week on The Job. 